Good morning. Uh, before I get started, just two quick announcements. Last week, um, if you go out that door into the youth area, we had a ministry fair set up. So there's a bunch of poster board and just activities and different groups you can join. If you're able to go through last week, you know, please go through again because we need more people to sign up. Um, but if you're not able to go through, I invite you to please go through. That's a chance to find out about the different ministries of the church, different things, different ways to get plugged in. Next week is Labor Day, and we'll celebrate Labor Day by actually, for those of you who will be here, uh, by actually celebrating this idea of what is the work that God has called us to do together. So that's just a chance for you to learn more. Uh, the second announcement is, as you came in, I think through this door, um, we have this survey that we've been talking about. You can find it on the HPIC website, Next Steps. Uh, you can go, if you have a smartphone, you can literally take a picture and it'll put you up on the website. You can fill out the information on your phone right there. We'd love to hear from you. I think by our last count, I don't know, I haven't counted since first service, we had 40 people who've done it, right? Um, one of the things that makes us unique is that we as a body are not only a family, but we're a family that needs to hear every voice and wants to hear every voice. So if there's only 40 people who filled out the surveys, we're like woefully short, right? So maybe you could be 41, right? Go team go, right? B41 even on the way home, not the ones who are driving, right? But you can do this, right? But we need to hear from everyone. So I wanted to invite you to, yeah, whether you take the picture or go on the website, I think we also have hard copies on that table there in the back. If you prefer to fill out that way and give it to us, but please, please fill that out. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Again, this is part of not only our discernment for next steps, but to figure out what God is saying to the body and what God is saying to us together. So those are my two announcements. Ministry Fair, check it out and sign up, right? Uh, next week, we'll talk more about what does it mean to do work together. And then please, please sign up for, um, or please fill out the surveys as part of these next steps. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the church that connects. The church connects, and we're going to be talking about um, what it means that God is connected to us, and how does that impact our world, and how God has called us to connect to our world while we're connected to him. Uh, and my prayer kind of is preparing for this service and preparing for this message is that, that all of us where we are may know, experience, and, and share God's love, because that's how we're connected to God, that we not only know God, but we're known by God, that we not only experience God, but that those experiences can transform us into the image of his son. But all of us who know God and who've experienced God are not called to hold on to God, but to share God with our world, but to take God into our world. And as we take God into our world, that connection we have with him is able to not only be seen by our world, but it's able to be felt and known and experienced. So as we're going through the book of Acts, we've been saying this is the, the story of the church then and now. And we've been positing this question of what do we have to learn from the church back then that connects us to, to that helps us to the church now. Now, the passage we're going to focus on here in Acts 17, specifically verses 16 and 34, you hear me say this a lot, but this is actually really one of my favorite scriptures in all of the scripture. This is my favorite passages in all of the scripture. And one of the reasons is, you know, if you want to tell somebody, you know, what does it mean, what God's calling us to do, I might take them to Jeremiah 29, right? Which tells us that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, God calls us to seek the peace and shalom and well-being of the city where we are. Right? If we're going through times of difficulty and, and struggle, we might take them to Joshua 1, 7. It says, be strong and courageous, right? Because God is with you. You know, if someone is feeling alone, we might take them to Psalm 139 or Psalm 123 or Psalm 23 and remind them that God is always there. That God is before you sit up, before you rise on, before you think, before you even exist, that God thought about you. And that same God who thought about you is your shepherd. But there's a reason I love this passage, because it teaches us how we are to impact our world. How do we make these connections with our world? The other thing that's interesting about this passage is that 
there's a tension here, right? And we've learned tension can be, you know, one side and one side and just that, that tension of being two different sides, right? We've learned tension can even be knocking heads, right, when you disagree. But we also learned that tension can be two things can be true at once. And I think this passage is holding these two things that are true at once. And in this passage, we say something um, where we see the, the, the battle really between independence, right, and interdependence. We see the idol of independence, and, and we see this ideal of interdependence. And, and I thought as Americans, right, we can understand independence. Because what are we but the nation of, what, give me liberty or give me death? What are we but a nation? Thomas Sowell said this, right? The freedom of America is the freedom to live your own life and take your own chances. What sounds more American than that? Uh, Stephen Covey, who, who teaches uh, apparently how to be a better person, he says, you know, we, we, us, we are the creative force of our life, and through our own decisions rather than our conditions, if we carefully learn to do certain things, we can accomplish those goals. We live in a society that's been born of independence. We live in a society that's been born in words like liberty and freedom and choice, and that seems to matter even more than the hurt it brings others. Because oftentimes our give me liberty and give me death leaves us in freedom as Americans, but death for others. We live in a culture where in a couple weeks we'll celebrate 20 years, right? Where they tell us, never forget. Never forget 9-11. 3,000 people died. But we don't accompany that with the 240,000 Afghanis who've died since 9-11. 80 times our number. We never forget that there's no peace in the Middle East. But we always forget that we're often the cause of no peace in the Middle East. So in this country, when we look at this God of independence, this idol of liberty and choice and freedom, this idol of what I think matters the most, what I say matters the most, what I feel matters the most, we realize that makes us American. But that does not make us Christian. That does not make us Jesus followers. And that does not make us faithful to our God. And Paul sees the same thing at Athens. So you have this, this, this idol of independence that we know very well as Americans who says, my liberty, even if it comes at your death, matters most. My choice, right, even if it hurts you or puts you in danger, matters most. My freedom, even if it's leading to your dying, matters most. That makes you American, but not a Christian. The Christians are the ones who realize that we're interdependent. And there's a reason why interdependent matters more than independence, because independence says, it's me. Doesn't matter whose authority, doesn't matter who else says anything, it's all about me, dependent of no one else, just me. But interdependent, the scripture reminds us that we are the body of Christ, that we are members of one another, that we are God's offspring. That God has created every single person. The kids read for us in John chapter 3. It's not for God so love Americans. It's not even for God so love Hank. It's for God so love the world. And that's what we have to understand. And that's the tension point in this passage where you have a people. We remind ourselves that we're not citizens of America. Your passport might say that. But when you choose to follow Jesus Christ, your primary citizenship is in heaven meaning that every single person is now your sister and your brother. And that's what it means to be interdependent. And you'll see it in this passage as you wrestle with it in your life. Our country, our world wants us to be independent and think about me and me and me, but our God calls us to we. How do we reach we? I think the answer is some of it we find in this passage. 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me in Acts chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 16 to 34. We'll also have it up front so you can follow along there as well um, if you don't have your Bibles with you. Starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods like Jesus and the resurrection. They said this because Jesus was preaching the good news about, because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and they said, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And you can see Luke's joy in this Areopagus, because he says, all in a parenthetical, right? All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas or social media, but that's just my edit. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands and is as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demaryius. Some of the background happening in this passage is that there's been a little bit of a transformation. Luke does this. What's interesting to me is that in the Old Testament, for example, it's a big deal, right? Part of your covenant with God, part of starting a relationship with God is you get a new name. And that's what happened in, in all the, the, the covenants back then. So whether you look at an ancient covenant like the Doopy Plus Up, well, I remember that one because it's Doopy Plus Up. You can't forget Doopy Plus Up, right? What they would do is they would actually combine names, and that's how you make covenant. So, for example, people in our modern era might have, like, you know, two last names when they get married and they put them together. My last name was Johnson. My wife was Stosfus. We thought that was a little too much, right? If our kids play sports, we didn't want their names to wrap around their back, right? Stosfus Johnson. That's just too much, right? But the idea, you see it, right? Like, the idea of two people coming together was very, very common. And so in the Old Testament, when you see these covenants, for example, Abram, right, becomes Abraham. And that literally was a, a name of God that was combined with Abram to make Abraham. You see the same thing when Jacob, you know, a, 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 a couple generations later, wrestles with this angel of God and becomes Israel. So we see when we first meet Saul, he's persecuting Christians. He's, he's jailing them. He's seeing even some of them killed. 
And what I love about this is that we learn so much more about Saul after conversion, right? The first thing we learn is that, you know, he's been uh, converted on Damascus roads. We see discipleship and people coming alongside of him, right? And in our culture, we tend to think that it's about me and God, right? But in, in, in this culture, it's, it's about people who know God coming alongside of you and walking with you along the journey. It's not just supposed to be you and God. Like, we're a community. We're a family. We're better together, right? So do you see these people pouring into him? You see Saul then invited into ministry and serving and what I love is in the Old Testament, it's a big deal when you convert and they change your name. Luke just makes it like a, like a, like a passing comment. I think it's in like Acts 13. It's like, oh, yeah, and Saul was also known by Paul, right? No big deal. But then from then on, he calls him Paul. So there is a big deal because the shift has happened. In the Acts 13 passage, Luke actually has a line where he says, and he was filled with the Spirit. So as this conversion is happening, you see God working on the meta level, on the grand scale, because who Paul becomes is the most significant Christian in that early church and even today. Most of our New Testament then is written by this Paul. Most of these letters that we follow in these epistles are written to churches and communities he either planted or, or at least like oversaw or at least he encouraged, right? So as on a greater level, that's what God's doing. But the chapter right before we see the God of all things is also the God who's present in our moment. And as Pastor Bree preached with us last week, she shared that great message about the prison miracle of Paul and Silas. And, and we learned that the miracle wasn't just the rescue. The miracle wasn't just the redemption and the Philippian jailer and his family and household coming to God. The miracle wasn't even just the witness of Paul and Silas, but the miracle was praise. And it's a reminder to us that no matter what we're going through, we are to praise the Lord. No matter what we're facing, we are to praise the Lord. No matter what life throws at us, we are to praise the Lord. Because there's one truth that we hold on when it comes to praise. We become what we worship. And if you worship God and you're praising God, then God's transforming you no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through. So on a macro level, on a big scale, we have Saul coming, Paul, and emerging as the voice of the church. The disciple to the Gentiles, yes, but the voice of the church that still rings out truth today. To the point where I debate some of my friends that Jesus matters more but then this opposition arises up against them. And they said, look, this guy, Paul, is out here preaching this Jesus is king. What a treasonous traitor. What a traitor. Let's go. And they rile up a mob and they push him out of town, right? And you think that would learn his lesson, but then he gets to Berea. And in Berea, they said they were of noble character. Now, this isn't meant to just mean that they were good people, but it meant that these were people, even among the Greeks, who were understood to take knowledge and sift it. Take knowledge and don't just believe it because someone said it, but take knowledge and think through it and, and maybe like process it and, and basically find the logic and reasoning behind it. They were really good at that. And a Berea, what does he do? He starts the same pattern. Goes where the people are. He goes to the synagogue. He opens up the scripture and says, this scripture that you've known, that you've memorized, it all points to Jesus. This Messiah we've been waiting for, his name is Jesus. All these promises God has made, it's found in Jesus. And while he's pointing them to Jesus again, a, a, a group rises up and they believe. But there's another opposition group that actually comes from Thessalonica. God follows him all the way to Berea, and they too drive him out of town. And what's interesting about this passage is that in both of these, if you're looking by the success metrics, Paul's very successful, right? He's very successful because many people believe. The other thing that's interesting that Luke throws in here that it's easy for us to just gloss over, Luke mentions like many people were saved. But he also makes a point to point out that, and many prominent women were also saved. That's important because our faith, ever since Jesus has left, 
has become increasingly more chauvinistic and male-driven. And our faith needs to be reminded that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for women. And I'm not even talking about the fact that they birthed us. That's the first one. But the fact that the early church was dependent on them from the days of Jesus. The disciples all left their jobs. Who supported them but the women? The disciples didn't work. They were out there preaching and doing miracles. Who supported them but the women? And this continued through the book of Acts. And we've met prominent women like Lydia, prominent women like Damaris, who we see in this chapter, who have literally taken their blood and sweat and tears and given money to support the early ministry of the church. And I think why Luke points this out is for us to be reminded that we all have a part to play, yes. For us to be reminded that the church is interdependent on each other. So just as much as they needed Paul to emerge as a voice, they needed women in their bank accounts to support the ministry. And so that's what happened. So he goes to Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He's hiding. He gets pushed out at night. He thinks he's safe. And his job is to just lay low. It's to lay low until Timothy and Silas show up. He's on the run. Two different cities and towns want him killed for being a treason, a traitor. So you would think my guy would just lay low. You would think Paul would actually be like Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in trouble? Remember what he did? He went to Africa where everything's great. Right? He went to Africa. You know, I tell people this all the time. You love your Jesus. Your Jesus wouldn't be here if Africa didn't welcome him in. You know, it's just a beautiful thing to know. You can argue with me, but it's in the scripture. And so you would think he would lay low. Like Jesus laid low all those years. People are like, what happened to Jesus when he was a baby until he was 30? I was like, laying low? They wanted to kill him. Like, that's mostly what happened. But he doesn't lay low. I think what's interesting about this passage in Acts 7, that's what distresses him. We can all be heartbroken by darkness in the world, but are you heartbroken that people just don't know Jesus? Because that's what arrests Paul. That's what moves him. Even though he's supposed to lay low, he looks around the city of Athens, and his eyes are open, and he sees a city just filled with idols. So one, one writer said there's idols on every street. Another writer says, no, 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 no. If you want the pretty idols, you go to Athens, right? They're aesthetically pleasing. They were amazing. And I started thinking about some of the idols in our lives that are so common. Because the tension for us to be like, well, I don't have idols. You know, I don't build anything I worship, right? But idols could be anything that comes before following Jesus Christ. So the idols might not be anything you create necessarily, but it could be even the good things, like that job you love, or the education you hold on to, or the money in that bank account, or the family you're a part of, or in this country, the skin color that you have, or for some of us, the American citizenship that we have. Our idols can be so many things, and it can be anything that we put before Jesus. And to us, it might be pretty too and warm and cozy. But to God, it pulls you away from God, and it means you belong in your own by that idol more than you belong to your God. Paul sees these idols, and he's distressed. And I love that he goes to the synagogue, and he goes to reason with them. And this reason is different. You know, I, I made a comment about social media earlier, right? Some of us think it's reason to go on social media and just argue back and forth, right? I'm still waiting for the first person to be saved over social media. Like, when you find that person, please send them my way. I've been waiting a long time, right? Like, I argued so well on social media, this person said, I believe in Jesus, right? I just believe in Jesus now, right? I'm waiting for that. When you get that person, send them my way. We'll celebrate together, right? But the reason that's being spoken of here is that Paul isn't going to argue just to go back and forth and bump heads. Paul is going to meet them where they are, start with what they understand, connect them to Jesus in hopes of them following Jesus. That's very different than just arguing back and forth. 
Meet them where they are. Start with what they understand. Pray for the Spirit's help to connect them so that they can choose to follow Jesus. That's what he means by he's going to reason. The other thing that's interesting here, though, is he switches his strategy. In Thessalonica, he went to the synagogues and preached there to the Jews and the, the God-fearing Greeks and the people who would come to the synagogue. In Berea, he goes to the synagogue and preaches there to the Jews and the, the God-fearing Greeks and the people who would come to the synagogue. But in Athens, he's so distressed by people who are so far from God, he not only goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace. And I love that, because it's a reminder to us. In our culture, we do very well to listen to our Christian music and go to our Christian schools and, and have our Christian friends and have our Christian family. We do very well to have our Christian sanitized everything. But God calls us to the marketplace. God calls us to the marketplace. We're in central Pennsylvania, so I love this analogy. I use it all the time. God doesn't call us to be a silo, right? To save up all for the rainy day and just pile it up and pile it up and pile it up for me and mine, right? God calls us to the marketplace too. There's a God, sure, whatever, he's there, right? Or, or maybe this idea that like he's way up there, he has nothing to do with us down here, right? Like we act as if those people don't exist anymore. But the Epicureans were also about reason, but their level of reason was simply this. It has to make sense to me. If it doesn't make sense to me, it must not be true. And the Epicureans also define life by the pleasure they felt. So for them, it's, it's if God exists, whatever, he has nothing to do with me. My life is about getting the most pleasure I can get. And, and my reason is if it doesn't make sense to me, it must not be true. I think there's Epicureans among us. I think there's Epicureans in our families. I think there's Epicureans in our workplaces. I think there's Epicureans in our, our city blocks or, or our, our country roads, you know? I was going to say country trees, but I don't know about the birds, maybe, right? There's Epicureans among us who look at it as if God is so far out there, what does he have to do with me? Or, or, or life is only about the greatest pleasure I can get out of it. Or life is only about what makes sense to me. Paul teaches us that that's your marketplace too. That's who you're called to, too. And then there's a stoic among them, right? And when we think about stoic, you're like, they show no emotion, you know? But these people, these stoic, they were popular, meaning that what is popular in society would be how they would go. You see, they, um, they would tolerate faith and religion, right? So how they show up in our culture is people who walk up to me and they're like, I think you're very religious. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Like, I don't like religions, you know? Like, I just don't pick religions and be like, yeah, I'm religious. You know, like, then people, this has been, welcome to Pet Peeve with Hank, by the way, right? This is my little soapbox. Stay with me, right? I hate when people call me religious. Because what they're doing is they're literally taking Jesus out of the equation. And I'm not one of those Starbucks people that fight over Xmas and Christmas, right? I could care less what Starbucks decides to do with their cup. Like, you'll never see me on that one but I'm never going to let you take Jesus out of my faith. I'm never going to let you take Jesus out of my faith. You want to call me religious? That's your business. But when you ask me what I am, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Because there's a distinction between I follow Jesus than I'm religious. Because the people in Athens were very religious, but they did not follow Jesus Christ. So when people say, are you religious? That's what the Stoic did. They, they're trying to pacify your faith into like, well, that's just something they do to be good. No, 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 no. Following Jesus is what transforms us, is what compels us, 
It's what has not only our heart, but our lives. It's how we're called to live and be and move. Following Jesus is not just about religion. And it's not, I wouldn't even say it's not just about relationship. Remember that? I'm a Christian. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. I love that. That's a good t-shirt, right? But practically, we follow Jesus because we believe he's the Lord and Savior. It means that we submit to him. It means like, unlike the Stoic, we're not just going to go by popular emotion or popular thinking or popular reason or popular knowledge. We're going to say, what does Jesus say? How is Jesus there? Because the Stoics are all about experience. And in our culture today, our Stoics show up by people who say, my truth matters just as much or even more than your truth. My experience matters more than your truth. Now, I get it. I'm not saying there's not a role for subjective truth. I'm not saying what we experience doesn't matter. But I am saying if the hundred of us in this room went to 22nd and Derry and is preaching to them, they draw him to the Areopagus, which is interesting because this was the high court. This was the council. If you're familiar with London, it's like Speaker's Corner, right? It's like you go to Speaker's Corner on Sunday mornings and, and Sunday afternoons, and you just set up a soapbox, a little soapbox. You stand on it, and you can talk about everything you want. And people will come and argue you about anything you want to. The Areopagus was this height of Grecian learning, right? The height of society and culture, the most educated, their level of like speaker's corner where you go argue with all their Ivy League scholars, if you will, right? They would all gather there. And that's where he's led to, this high court. And what's interesting is that he's not just, you know, a guest speaker, but he's on trial, Remember, the claim that they've made on him is that he's a treasonous traitor who's preaching another king, and that even theologically or religiously, if you want, he's departed from the Jewish faith. So Paul now has to emerge among them to not only give this death speech, if you will, but to go on trial for the gospel. And what I love about Paul here is Paul becomes the kind of evangelical we should be. I hate that word personally because no one knows what it means anymore. Right? Whenever they say evangelical, when do they ever mean a person who tells you about Jesus? When? Again, just like the person who's saved on social media, when you find that person who means evangelical by what the word actually means, right? Evangelion, the good news. Remember, the Roman good news is we killed you. Yeah, we won, right? The Jesus' good news is I died. Yeah, we won. Paul becomes a true evangelical. And that he goes there, and his job is to tell people about Jesus. That's the meaning of evangelical we can get behind. Everything else, throw it out. It's trash. But are you living to tell people about Jesus? Because that's what Paul does here. And when he gets up there, he learns and teaches us how we're to connect to this world. And I love that he starts off with what I told you I hate, right? He goes, greeting people of Athens. I hear you're very religious. He starts off with this idea that like, hey, I've been in your city a while, and I know religion is important to you. I know thought is important to you. I know reason is important to you. He greets them. He acknowledges them. But then he does something that I think is phenomenal here. He walks into their culture not to fight it, not to change it, not even to personally transform it. He walks into their culture and says, God, this is who they are. This is what they believe. This is where they're at. Right? Help me connect them to you. I think if we looked at culture that way, we would stop fighting cultural wars and start pointing people to Jesus Christ. 
It's not about us convincing people to change their values, their beliefs, and where they start. Instead of looking at it as opposition to us, we need to look at as, uh, if you're a college student, the prerequisites, right? Like the prerequisites. If you're building a house, it's the foundation. If you want people to know Jesus, you have to start where they're at. And starting where they're at isn't just condemning where they're at, right? You take what they believe, what they value, what they hold on to, and you say, God, this is the base material. This is all I got. I need you to help me connect here. And what a way does Paul connect. And this is why missions agencies in Africa, in Asia, here in North America, in Europe, in South America, this is why they come back to this passage. Because this passage teaches us that the God who just cover everything else, right? You got fertility, rain, fire, all that stuff. And then what we don't know, we'll call the unknown God. But there was older people among them who knew that unknown God wasn't just like an insurance plan who knew that a generation or two before there was a plague in the land it was sweeping the land and they prayed to all their other gods and nothing happened so they cried out to an unknown god and the plague stopped and i don't know how paul found this out but again instead of arguing with all the idols of the culture he says that unknown god who stopped the plague let me tell you about him Within every culture, within every society, God is already working and moving. It's our job to find out where and how. And he looks at them and their unknown God and be like, that one you've been worshiping, that one you still have an altar for, let me tell you about him. And this unknown God, he identifies as God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the life giver. He relates the Athenians to, to kind of what they already believe, that we are God's offspring, that every single person belongs to God. But the Athenians, kind of like us Americans, we believe that everyone belongs to God, but we're better than them, you know? It's the same thing that they believe, but Paul says, no, 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 we are all God's offspring. We are all God's offspring. Mankind, we all belong in this God story. And then I love what he does here. He starts with their understanding of the unknown God. He introduced them to who the unknown God is. And then he quotes their thinkers. And I thought about that this week. It's like, if I had to pick a thinker or two thinkers for 2021 in America, who would I quote? And it terrified me, so I stopped. <laughs> but that's what he does, right? He quotes their thinkers, right? He gets these poets, Epimenides, who says, what? In him, in this God, in this big spirit, in him we live and move and have our being. And he quotes another poet, Aratus, who says, we are God's offspring. So not only does he go into the culture, go into the society, he finds their base understanding of God. He even finds hints of God among their writers and poets. And he uses all of that as the raw material to what? Point them to Jesus. And reminders that this God, who they called unknown, has a name and is found in Jesus. And I love this here. Maybe it's just Mrs. Bivens, and I love wordplay in English, right? But it reminds them that this God is not an idol that they can make with their hands, that they can hold on to, that they can carve, that they can worship and control. But he also reminds them that this God who's not an idol you make is also now a God who's not idol. Meaning he's not this deist God <laughs> who's up there, right, and has nothing to do with what's happening down here. Which means that this God who in the past has created everyone and, and marked out the lands and, and did everything, and Romans, Paul will write again that, you know, he, through creation, will reveal who he is so no one's without excuse. But here he promises that this God found in Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he will judge everyone for whether or not they choose to follow him. And what's fascinating about this is that the people, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Jews, the Greeks, they all struggle with this idea of what happens after. 
kind of like us, right? Some of them would say, like, it's a great unknown. Some of them would be like, I think there's an afterworld, underworld, afterlife. Some of them, the, 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 the more holy among them, be like, well, everything is God. So we'll just absorb back into God. And, it's, and how it's important to meet people where they're at. We need to be reminded that it's to meet them, to connect them to Jesus. I started saying this in youth group 15 years ago. It's not enough for us to say people are on the ground, they're suffering. It's not enough for us to say, let me lay down next to you. There's a comfort in me laying next to you, right? Like, if you like personal touch, that's your love language, good. But some of us don't like personal touch. Get away from us, right? Like, laying next to you might be comforting, but it's not really helping you, right? I'm just laying next to you, and that might be temporary, but now we have two of us in the mud, right? If we're in quicksand, you don't want me to lay next to you in quicksand, right? But then there's also the fact that I can't on my own pull you out of that quicksand, so the problem or the, the, the work of connecting is saying, Father God, help me to see the people in the quicksand. Help me to go to the people in the quicksand. Empower me through the power of your Holy Spirit and my community around me, maybe even my community. Let us put our hands together and help that sister, help that brother out of the quicksand so we can pull them up and take them to where God desires them to be. Our call is to connect. One of the most disappointing things I've ever done to people is when I went to Haiti in 2014. I led this youth mission trip, and I was super excited to go to Haiti. When I was in fourth grade, I lived in Ivory Coast. I was, uh, I was going to say I'm a missionary. I was not a missionary. I was a refugee and, and uh, an exiled kid, and we were running for our lives. But in Ivory Coast, I went to fourth grade. I learned French. And so my French to this day is like broken, you know? And when I got to Haiti, it was very different, two levels. The first one is, I don't know if you've ever been in the South in the summer, there's something called humidity that we in the North think we know about, right? But then you get to the South and it's like right here, you know? Like it literally feels like someone's breathing hot air on your face at all times, right? I thought that was bad. Then I got to Haiti, I'm like, oh, this is another level. Like this is, whoo. Like it's like you literally take a half a step out of the airport and it just smacks you, right? Like it's just like, I am here, you know? The second thing though, and this was the level of disappointment, I felt like the Haitians were so happy to see me. They're like, oh, my black African brother, you know, like, this is great, you know? It's like a sea of whiteness, and then it was me. It's like, this is awesome, right? And then I opened my mouth to speak, and they're like, oh, <laughs> you're not one of us. <laughs> you're not one of us at all, right? And the level of disappointment every Haitian I would meet would be like, oh. It's almost like when you meet someone who's speaking the king's English. You're just like, who are you? Like, that just sounds weird, right? I didn't realize that's what I sounded like. But what's interesting, though, and what that trip taught me is that our commonality, our interdependence, is not even based on our color of skin. It's not even based on our shared history. And if you know anything about Haiti, Haiti's actually the first republic on these shores, right? And we've oppressed them since then. You know, like, they're like, hey, independence. And then the West has been oppressing them for hundreds of years. But that's another conversation, right? What's fascinating, though, is I had to learn that week that the commonality, the interdependence that is in Jesus Christ affords me to meet them where they are. And for me, it was through the broken language and the broken French and the broken Creole I was trying to speak. But the love was able to transcend. And I think that's what we're all called to do. Because if we want to connect with our world, we have to lose our Americanness, or we have to become Christ-like. Your Americanness is going to say your independence matters the most. Your Christ-likeness is going to say interdependence has to trump that. It has to trump that. It's not about your right, your liberty, your freedom, your choice. It's about us belonging to each other.
It's about us loving one another. So Naomi doesn't care. People you know who says my truth matters more than anything else. People you know who says my, my, me, mine matters more than everything else. People you know who are living for money or pleasure. People who you know who are living for the things of this world that will all pass away. That's your harvest. And some of us, it might mean going to the ends of the earth. But for most of us, it might mean inviting a neighbor to lunch or a coworker a meal. For all of us, there's work to do. The harvest is already there. And the last thing I want to say about connecting, and this is probably the hardest part and the greatest consistent prayer we have to pray, is that it's enough for us to depend and trust God. But we go to different people and we interact with people who don't believe. Our prayer must be, God, I know you're here. God, I know you've worked ahead of me. God, I know there's raw material that I can connect with here. Help me see it. Because like Jesus, we must meet people where they are. And like Jesus, we must invite them to where God desires them to be. Because Christ is here. And just like God is connected to us, he's called us to build our lives on his love so we can connect to our world. I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. We're going to end singing that song, Build My Life. And as we sing this song, I'd like to invite any pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on, or if there's something in this message that you want to respond to, we'd love to pray for you for that. Or maybe there's a person or a place, you know, that God's calling you to, uh, or that's on your mind that you're like, hey, I want to pray for this. I want to pray for this person. I want to connect with this person. I want to invite you up so we can pray for that too. But as we sing this song, may we be challenged. That it's not simply about us being connected to God. It's not even about us being connected in this room as HBIC. It's about us being connected to our world. So how does you knowing your neighbors change your world? How does you knowing your workmates change your world? For some of us, it's the harder one. How does you knowing your family <laughs> change your world? Because that's what we're called to do. Let's stand and sing together.
never confuse me for a builder and engineer. You know, in my house, when stuff breaks, I call people, or my wife fixes it, that's how we roll. We're a very modern family, you know? We don't believe in gender roles. Um, but as I think about the fact that the raw material, right, for connecting and changing this world, the raw material is what people, what they have, what they value, what they, what they believe, that's our starting point. That's the raw materials. And if we're able to say, God, show me who you are, fill me with your heart, give me your love and let that be the firm foundation. If the raw material is what they have and what they believe, and the firm foundation is made complete with God's love, that your love is all we have. We thank you so much that your love is what we feel, what we experience, but what you fill us up with as we pour out, not only being filled by you, but pour out into this world. So Lord, for the people in our hearts, for the places on our hearts, we ask for eyes to see the raw material, what they believe, what their starting point is, where they are. Help us to not only see and understand that, but God, give us wisdom to be able to know how that points to you and what the starting point is. And God, show us who you are. Fill us up with your love. Fill us up with your heart. And fill us up so that we can go and build together with the Holy Spirit and with you, our God and Father, and with you, our Lord Jesus, a world, a kingdom, a people, a family that is truly on earth as it is in heaven. God, who's connected to us, help us to stay connected to you. Help us to stay interdependent with you and one another. And help us to build by inviting the lost back home again. In your holy and precious name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.